welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Schell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. If you take out your Bible, we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to stay in Corinthians this week. And we're going to look at verse 20 through 25. I have to say, I have, in all my years, I have never heard this passage talked taught properly, ever, not once. You are about to have it taught properly. <laughs> I'll show you why. It, it apparently has in it a contradiction. One verse says one thing, the next verse says the other. And so people get all... Somebody told me last night, one teacher had said, I think Paul was getting senile when he wrote this. That's not a good theology. Let me just just say that right there. That's a low view of scripture. Um, No, he's not senile. The man's brilliant. Anyway, I'll show you the controversy. Look at verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, so then tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to whom? Unbelievers, okay. So people say, see there, tongues is a sign to unbelievers. You know, and then they want to talk in tongues and they, at, at people and figure that'll, that'll make people go, ah, I believe. Verse 23, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and the ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said it was a sign for them. And now you say if they walk in and we're doing it, they're going to say we're crazy. You see it? it? It it appears to be a complete contradiction of itself. It is not. It is not. It's a brilliant rabbinical rabbinical argument that he's making, but it hasn't been seen. I'll tell you why. We have not un- to understand the New Testament. You have to understand the Old Testament. You cannot wade into the New Testament. It it is a Jewish book. It's a Jewish book from Genesis to Revelation. It just happens that Messiah comes here, and, 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 is, and we know him to be Jesus. And all, but all of it is the same author. All of it has developed themes all the way through. It's as consistent as it could be. It's remarkable. I mean, it's impossible that a book could be like this, except it is a divine product. And so, what you go, if we understand the Old Testament here then this makes perfect sense. Let's have a look. Father, open our hearts. We would bring to you tender, yielded hearts. That which is true, we will believe, and we will obey. Lord, I ask that your, your word would speak, and give me the grace to let you speak and to stay out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Corinthians 14, Paul will start saying, um, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Whatever version you have, would you read out loud verse 21 with me? Here we go. In the law it is written... By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Okay, I'll go on. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. The principle Paul is teaching the Corinthians in this passage comes directly out of the law of Moses. 
It's based on one of the curses that God said Israel would endure if they disobeyed. His, his covenant. Here's how the original warning was stated. Because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the ends of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. See that last line? A nation whose language you shall not understand. On occasion, the prophets, whose assignment from God was to remind the nation of the covenant they had made at Mount Sinai, would remind Israel of this particular curse. Now, just let me say again. The prophets are not grumpy people who are simply criticizing their culture and calling it to justice. That's not at all what's going on. They are spokesmen for the covenant. And so the covenant has in it blessings and curses. All of Israel, when they formed that covenant at Mount Sinai, went, walked before, uh, it would have been Moses and some of his, his, his elders, and they sprinkled a million and a half people. They sprinkled them with blood. What did that symbolize? So be it to me, violent death, if I should break this covenant. So you have a real formal transaction. An ancient, this is ancient times, but this is the way they did it. A transaction has been formed. God says, will you obey me? All of Israel says, we will obey you. And they're sprinkled with blood and say, kill us if we don't. And one at a time, the entire nation walked before God and were sprinkled. So you have this covenant. The covenant has in it blessings. If you obey me, I will do these things. I will bless you this way and I'll, I'll prosper you and you'll be the head and not the tail, etc., etc. All of these good things. But if you disobey me, these, these bad things will happen to you. And it, it lists them in detail. All these things will happen. And one of them is what I just read you. If you, if you disobey me long enough, what will happen is, is, is nations from, a nation from afar will come with strange tongues. They'll conquer you. And the babble of foreign languages will be all over your nation as your, as your new masters speak their language over you. They would warn the people that if they did not repent and turn back to God, he would lift his protective hand. Armies from distant lands would suddenly invade their country and they would be ruled by a nation whose language they did not understand. The basic point of their message was this. If God's people refuse to listen to the warning he gives through his prophets, at some point he will stop speaking to them. He will go silent and the sign of this Judgment will be the foreign language spoken by their new masters. Suddenly in their own land, everywhere they turn, they will hear the confusing babble of a language they don't understand. And that babble would be God's way of saying to them, I've stopped talking to you because you refuse to listen to me. Before Babylon invaded Judah, Jeremiah pointed to this curse and warned the nation that this would happen. Listen. Behold, I'm bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Before Assyria invaded Israel, Isaiah pointed to this same curse and warned, Indeed, he, God, will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. Did you see it? That's the full quote there of Isaiah that Paul is quoting from. And you'll notice what it says. God says, I spoke to you and I said, here is rest, here is repose, come obey me and I will bless you. But you would not listen to me. So in the next the next sound you hear, the next voice you hear will not be mine, says God. It will be the voice of babbling foreign uh, enemy who has conquered you. I, my, my word to you is, I'm not speaking to you anymore. But both prophets are explaining an important truth about God. To those who listen and obey, God will speak to them in a language they understand. But to those who refuse to obey... He will stop speaking. And his silence should serve as a warning that their heart has grown hard. 
In my opinion, verses 20 through 25 have been improperly interpreted in nearly every teaching I've ever heard on this subject. People usually point to verse 22 to prove that tongues is meant to be a sign to unbelievers to convince them that God is real. But then verse 23 says exactly the opposite. So it all ends up very confusing. I believe that this confusion arises from the fact that the rabbinical nature of Paul's argument is overlooked. By quoting Isaiah 28.11, Paul is not taking a verse out of context because it happens to mention speaking in, a stra- in strange tongues. He was a very learned rabbi who understood the context of what was being said in Old Testament scriptures. Do you understand that about Paul? He was one of the top rabbinical scholars of his day. His mentor, mentor was Gamaliel. Gamaliel is to this day read and quoted. This is a very famous uh, rabbi. That was Paul's mentor. He was a rising star. The man has undoubtedly memorized most of the, or or all of the Old Testament. He's, He's at that level. So when he reads these Old Testament passages, he's not taking them out of context. He knows the context. He knows what's being said. He knows way better than I what Isaiah said and what he meant when he spoke those words. So this rabbi is trying to tell this Greek congregation for the most part. There's some some Jews there, but not many. And he's trying to explain to them uh, a, a passage from an Old Testament warning. He knew that Isaiah was giving a warning that God was about to cut off all meaningful communication with those who would refuse to listen to him that Israel's prophets would go silent, and that the people would be left with only a babble of foreign tongues surrounding them. He knew that in this passage, foreign tongues were a sign of judgment. Isaiah was not prophesying that someday people would speak in tongues. The problem Paul is addressing in this passage is identified in verse 23. If the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues. Would you read that with me? If the whole church assembles and all speak in tongues. Now notice that. That's the problem he's addressing. Apparently when Corinthians gathered for a public service, they would all speak in tongues at once. Probably in a loud voice and probably for a significant amount of time. That is the behavior Paul is trying to stop, and he gives them two reasons. Unbelievers and believers. Would you say that? Yeah, we've got to understand, this is verse 22. What does he mean by unbelievers and believers? Now let me read verse 22 once more. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecies are for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. All right. If we keep Isaiah's actual meaning in mind, then Paul's comments in this verse make perfect sense and fit nicely into his argument against uninterpreted tongues dominating a public service. The key is to understand what he means by the words unbelievers and believers. When he says tongues are assigned to unbelievers, he doesn't mean people who are not yet Christians. He means hard-hearted religious people who have refused to believe and obey the things God has said to them. And when he says prophecy is not for unbelievers but believers, he means those who believe God's promises and obey him. In other words, the kind of unbelievers and believers Isaiah was talking about. When Isaiah is talking about unbelievers, who is he talking about? Those who God says, "I, I told you where rest and repose was. I've told you how to walk in my blessings, and you would not. Now that's a form of unbeliever, isn't it? It's, 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 it's your person who is culturally a, a Christian, shall we say, but inside their hearts never surrendered. This is your, this is your church kid that grew up and learned how to play the game. They know what to say, they know how to play all the game, they know all the theology, but it's never reached their heart. This is the person who is a, the, 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 grew up, their, their father's a pastor, heaven help us. And, and they know it all, they know it backwards and forwards, but they've learned to live a double life. They've learned to live one way in church and one way behind everyone's back. Their hearts, they're truly unbelievers 
but they're religiously hard. You understand? This is, the, this is what, when Isaiah is going after the people, he's talking to people who know God, supposedly. Who, this, the, the true God is their God. They have, the, they have the word of God. They have all of these things, and they've hardened themselves and turned to other gods. They're deliberate, they're rebellious, they're defiant. And Paul says, Pro- tongues, the kind Isaiah's talking about, It's a sign of judgment. God talks to people who are real believers. And if you're hard in your heart, that's who he stops talking to. And you hear the babble of other languages. So in this verse, Paul is trying to explain to the Corinthians that when they all speak in foreign languages at once, and there is no interpretation or prophecy, they are giving out a very wrong impression. The babble of incomprehensible languages over God's people is a sign of judgment. But prophecy is a sign of his favor. So in, a, in public gatherings, tongues should be restrained unless a tongue is to be interpreted and prophecy should be given preference. Now let me, let me comment on this. There is always, I mean, I, I've, over the years, I don't know how many times this happened, but I've had people come up to me, and they're, they're, they're from the, a non-Pentecostal church, and if they heard someone in the church speaking in tongues, or if we, we happen to have, have sort of worshipped and everybody's begun to do some of that, they will come up to me going, you're not supposed to speak in tongues unless it's interpreted. Right there, see it? See it? See it? And they're tonk, donk, donk. They're basically, you know, get back in the box. And uh, their purpose is to silence us. And they use that text that way. Paul is saying, look, church, he says, I do not want you all roaring away in tongues. And, and, he's, and his purpose is because he cares about the visitors. In other words, if, you, if a bunch of you want to get in some house somewhere, and, you know, and you've got just all believers and everybody knows what's going on, you want to roar, go for it. That's not his concern. His concern, remember, comes back to love. Wasn't that it? And he says, love should always cause us to want to edify each other and be deeply concerned about those who don't know Christ. That should always be our motivator. That should always be our great concern. So Paul is is saying, I don't want your services so disruptive, so chaotic like that, that people can't come and bring their family to church. That, that, uh, and, he, and I'll show you in a minute, he'll talk about the person who just wanders in. He says, they have to be considered. You have to be thoughtful of them. What do I do? Because, I mean, I'm a Pentecostal. There's no hiding that. And, and yet, I, I mean, I, I was, I'll admit, I was speaking in tongues down here during worship. Is that okay? Can you do that? And, and I, 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 but I kept it myself. I didn't roar. Uh, you didn't all hear me. I just was, but I was part of my worship while we're all singing. I'm over there doing that. But I, but, I, but I kept it to myself. I think that's perfectly appropriate. And, I, and Paul will say, actually, if you don't have an interpretation, speak to, your, speak to yourself and to God, meaning mumble it. Keep it down. Just don't dominate the meeting. That's what he's saying. And then there's another thing. Once in a while, you know, it just seems I've had situations where I just think we need to all rise up and pray. And, 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 we, and we need to do this with the Spirit helping us pray. Because we saw last week that, he, that, that this gift of tongues is, is, is help in our prayers. And so I'll say to the church sometimes, uh, okay, now we're all going to praise freely. Uh, some of you just go ahead and pray in the Spirit. Some of you pray in, pray in English. Uh, uh, either one. But let's just for a moment freely praise. Now what I've done is explained what we're doing. So this isn't some crazy moment. Not out of control. Uh, and I've also told those who don't speak in tongues, go ahead in English or your language, whatever it is. And then I'll tell you what I do is over the microphone, I'll speak in English. Because I'm taking care of, I'm, I'm making sure that those who don't speak in tongues are comfortable and don't feel left out and forgotten. I'll go ahead and I'll praise, by and large, in English. Am I, am I pressing the boundaries? yes. But that's as far as I know how to press him. <laughs> because I want to respect him. Because Paul is, you say what you will. 
Paul is my apostle. Is he yours? There's all kinds of books and all kinds of people, and I don't think Paul was probably cool. I don't think he wore torn jeans. Uh, <laughs> so, but he's, but he's my apostle. So regardless of what somebody else wears or says, I am following this guy. We all have to make those choices. So, you know, actually, if you follow Paul right through this chapter, you'll make the, the, you'll make the Pentecostal, the hyper-Pentecostals will all say you're quenching the spirit. And the non-Pentecostals say you're way out there, way too Pentecostal. You won't make anybody happy. Paul just takes a way right through that all has reason for it. And he says, these gifts are lovely. But he says, I want the love in you to be deeply concerned about those who come in. Paul was an evangelist as well as a teacher and everything else. As an apostle, he's all of it. And so he's got all of those things. You know who else was? Amy Seville McPherson. That's the woman who founded the Foursquare Church. Uh, Angelus Temple had like 30,000 people on a weekend in seven services. No joke. Can you imagine doing that for 30 years? It's just nuts. That woman cared deeply, and she always had her eye on the, on the, on the, on the doors in the back, watching for the, 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 the uncomfortable strangers who were just creeping in, you know, and listening. Her, her evening services, she'd always put on these productions and stuff. It's, they were very popular. They, sold t- they, gave, they gave tickets to it. It was so popular, people were out front scalping tickets. No joke. They'd scalp these tickets uh, to get in. And, and she, but it was that, it was the person who, who was just inquiring about Jesus, who didn't know what they thought of all of this Christian stuff, who she had her eye on that. And her whole, her whole doctrine of moderation has to do with not a little of this and a little of that. Her whole doctrine, she says, we do not want wildfire. She said, I don't want wildfire in the churches. Because she says, she, she, she says, on the other hand, we don't want to be cold. We want, we want the life of the Spirit. But she says, her heart was always for the unsaved. Is ours? Yes. Is ours? Yes. Because there's a whole lot of Pentecost that will end up saying, we just want to have a good time. <laughs> and in their good time, they get this little thing going. And they lose sight of the world and of the lost. I know. I grew up in that. And I, and I, and I respect the people and I love the people. I have no, nothing like that. But I want to just tell you, the Bible I read says, I have got to care for the lost and the, the stranger. The ones I, there always has to be in us this desire to bring Christ to the world. Do you, do you believe there's an eternal life? Do you believe that people that don't know the Lord will be away from him forever? That should burn in us, people. If that's true, we cannot live our lives indifferent to that fact. I cannot live in a world that's perishing and not care. And so that's what you're seeing Paul here. He's saying, into your services, I want the love of God to control you. And I want you to care about those who come. The ungifted and unbelievers... Verse 23. I'll read that again just so you have it in your, in your mind. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers. Say ungifted or unbelievers. Now there's the word unbelievers again, but it's paired with another word. It's paired with this word ungifted. I'll tell you what that really means in a second. Will they not say you are mad and then go on about if they of all prophesy and an unbeliever ungifted, and there's that pair again of unbeliever and ungifted enters, he, will, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all. Paul, now Paul gives the second reason he wants the Corinthians to stop speaking in tongues all at once in public services without interpretation and without prophecy. He doesn't say you can't. He wants it interpreted. 
He says the chaotic environment they were creating was causing visitors to think that the people in the church had lost their minds. He uses the word rave. <laughs> Paul uses the word unbeliever again in this verse. But this time he couples it with a word used earlier. Now, hang on. It's idiotes. He was not calling them idiots. That's, the, that's what we've taken the, you know, the English word to mean now. Idiotes is based on, the, on, a, on a, a Greek word that means self. And so the whole idea is someone who's come in on their own. They're not sponsored. Nobody brought them. They just are on their own. They wandered on in and know nothing. They're not taught. They're not, they're not trained. The, the person who came in the back going, what's, what's all this Christian stuff? They slipped into the back of your meetings. Uninvited maybe just came. And there they are listening. That's who he's talking about. Which describes a person who has come on their own and is curious or seeking to know more about Jesus. So the unbelievers in this verse is a different category of unbeliever than the, than the unbeliever in the preceding verse. The person in verse 22 is a stubborn, rebellious person who knows they're doing the wrong thing but refuses to be corrected. The person in this verse, 23, is a visitor who doesn't believe because they don't know about Jesus yet. This second type of unbeliever is not hardened or rebellious, just ignorant. So when he or she comes into an assembly which is in proper order and hears a prophecy of, in their own language, their heart is able to open to the word they hear. And they are likely to respond by, says Paul, falling on their face, worshiping God and declaring that God is among you. That's what happened to me as a boy. You've heard it many times, but let me just go to the heart of it. I was, when I, I'm 12 years old, I'm invited to this prayer meeting. My mother is, and she drags me. I sit in the chair, it's a group of maybe 10 people, um, I, in, in a little house out in 29 Palms, California. And I'm just sitting there listening, and suddenly this woman starts talking in another language. I've never heard of such a thing, so I, 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 I hear that and I think, why, they're bilingual. <laughs> now, if they'd all roared in tongues, I probably said, they're crazy. Uh, but they didn't. It was all orderly, and this woman speaks this other language. Nice, clear language. And I thought, huh, what if it's French? What are they? Something. So I'm starting to study and figure out what they are. And then she stops, and this man starts talking. And what he's actually doing is prophesying. And the irony of it was, God was actually correcting them for the conversation they just had had. I can still remember some of the words. I allow you to do this, but I don't condone it. <laughs> they had been talking badly about someone. And uh, so there was this scolding that went on. But as they spoke, I thought to myself, why, that's God. And then I said, so there is one. Because I had never really made that commitment. I had heard a little bit. My mother had read me some stories, not much. She'd taken me to some crazy stuff. I mean, really, really crazy. Um, but I had no commitment. No one had ever told me the gospel. I knew nothing. I'm one of these. I'm an idiotes. <laughs> and I'm just there listening to all of this. And when I hear him speak and I listen and it's God. Here's what I said to myself. I said, if that's God, I'm listening. And not with a curiosity. Not like, hey, let's see what the old guy's got to say. <laughs> it wasn't that. It's, my thought was, if, I'm, if that's him, I'm listening. And in effect, I bowed my knee. I'm going to tell you, I warn you this. If you just give God a crack in the door, he's coming in. So be careful. I'm just telling you. You just give him a crack in the door, he'll come right on through like you. And he did. And the power of the Lord hit me because there was a great deal of power in that place. The power hit me and I would literally went out. I fainted in the chair, came to, and my mouth's moving and I'm, and my tongue is moving by itself. And I, and I don't even know what's going on. I thought to myself, why, there's an angel and he's moving my tongue. I have no idea why I thought that. Unless there was an angel moving my tongue. And the power was all over me. And for weeks, I, I was, every evening, every morning, I had that on me. It took me weeks to process through that. I didn't even know what it was. was. Twelve-year-old boy. No knowledge whatsoever, no theology, no biblical teaching, and no one to help me. Try that one on for size. 
my mother had her own issues because it happened to her too. And she, but she just processed her own stuff. And I'm, I'm just wandering around trying to go, what do I do with this? And, and, and God changed my life. I'm one of those. One of those idiotes who walked into a church and got trapped in the back. But it was orderly. And when I heard it, and it's full of power. We're not knocking about power. This isn't saying no power. But this is saying it ought to be done with a thought to that, to that unbeliever. So to properly understand this passage, a distinction must be made between these two different uses of the word unbeliever. The first is an unbeliever because he or she refuses to listen to God because they know what he's going to say and don't want to hear it. The second is an unbeliever because he or she hasn't yet understood the gospel. In time, God will stop speaking to the first. To the second, he will speak directly so he can prove to them he is real. Now I want to apply this. That was a teaching. I needed to explain that. The passage from Isaiah that Paul quotes to the Corinthian church contains a very serious truth. If a person refuses to listen to God long enough, he will stop speaking. Did you hear this? If a person refuses to listen to God long enough, he will stop speaking. At some point, he will go silent. Though we may not recognize it at the time, the very fact that we can still hear God correcting us is a sign that we please him. And our hearts are still soft. So listen to what Solomon told his son. Would you read this out loud with me? My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Do you see what that means? If God loves you, he's going to discipline you. Hallelujah. When the Spirit grieves our heart, when a scripture shouts out a warning as we read it, when God sends someone to us with a word of correction, that communication, painful though it may be, means God considers us to be his child. And it's not too late to repent. Let me just say, guilt, even shame, those feelings that you suffer, sometimes when you're, when you're under conviction, doesn't it hurt? You say something, I don't suppose anyone misses this, do we? We, we say something and blurt something out, and then later realize what we just said, how cruel it was or how unfair it was, and you just feel horrible. Amen? That pain is a sign that God's with you. There's a, do you know the name Paul Brand? Paul Brand was a, was a doctor. Uh, I think he, he has passed away. I think his wife is possibly still alive, and I think she lives up here in Seattle. But he, he's famous. He was a, he, he was a researcher uh, and a doctor in leprosy. You know what leprosy is? Leprosy is that, it used to be in the United States, uh, and it may still be for all I know in places. But leprosy, we often think of it as, well, it makes your flesh rot and fall off. No, it doesn't. Real leprosy, and I know I actually was with my wife when she was doing a research project on that years ago. Real, real, real leprosy is a tuberculin, uh, like tuberculosis. It's, it's that bacteria that's on the skin. And it goes through the skin into, in places where the skin is close to nerves. And that the, the elbows are one, the knees are one, and it goes into what's called a myelin sheath on the, on the nerve and cuts it off. So what happens is, is you go numb from like your elbows down, so you feel nothing in your hands. You go numb from like your knees down, and you feel nothing in your feet. It can attack your face as well, your eyes, uh, your no nose, all of this kind of stuff. The eyes are a big part of this. So what happens with people with, with, with leprosy is that they grab something hot and it doesn't hurt. They cut themselves and they don't notice. They don't tend to it because they don't even know they've done it. What happens when you cut yourself or you burn yourself and you leave it like that? Gangrene. So what, set, what you see with leprosy is that gangrene sets in and their fingers fall off and their toes fall off and their nose fall. You know, it's, it's very terrible. It's a horrible thing. 
Uh, but, but it's not the disease that's making it fall off. It's the gangrene. Because they don't feel pain. So Paul Brand begins to research this. How do you care for people who don't feel pain so that they don't have these horrible things? Because they can still move stuff um, to, to some degree. So he, he finds that, for example, with your feet, you'll notice that when we're worshiping, this, do this one of these days, when, you, when everybody's standing there, you'll notice they're moving. They're, they're moving back and forth. It, people don't just stand. They move. When, and what you're doing is you're, you're moving the weight of your body to different parts of your foot. What, if you just stand and they compress one part of your foot, it begins to damage the tissue. And so you, you naturally, without even thinking about it, move all the time. You redistribute the weight to different parts of your foot. It's a natural part of protecting your foot. Well, the leprosy person can't feel that. So they just, they, they damage their feet, they damage their hands, they damage all of these things. So Paul Brand began to teach them and have special shoes and everything that would help them do that. But he wrote a book, and the book's title is this, The Gift of Pain. The gift of pain. And he says, we don't realize what a gift pain is. That tells us something's wrong. That tells us so that we can change it. Because without pain, we just keep ruining ourselves. People, it's that way spiritually. The conviction of the Lord. The grieving of the Spirit. The, the pain that comes into our hearts when we violate the Lord. And he, and he comes to us. Is not, not sad. It's a gift. And when, it's, if, when it stops is when you need to be worried. The pain, the con- conviction of, of the Lord is a good thing. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. So what we must learn to dread is not God's discipline, for that's a sign of his love. But his silence, beca- but his silence because that means, pardon me, is a sign of his love. But his silence, because that means we have pushed our rebellion to too far, and he has decided that it's time to discipline us another way with hardship. There is actually a progressive order to the way God disciplines us. His first step is to simply speak to his child, preferably by the inner voice of the Holy Spirit and through his written word. And then if we won't listen to those voices, he will send someone to speak to us. These are his prophets And the person he uses might be a believer or an unbeliever. Did you follow that? First thing God will do with you and me is he'll talk to us inside. That grieving, that that, that thought like you should go back and you apologize to her right now. (laughs) Those kinds of things. That's his correcting. Well, you open the word and it screams at you. You know, what did you just do? Oh boy, look at that. And that's him speaking to us. That's the pain, the gift of pain. He's talking and correcting us. If I won't listen to that, he'll send people. They'll come and they'll just say, can I talk to you? You know, I love you, right? Um, But what you're doing is not right. What you're doing is not okay. And may I point out that could be a believer or an unbeliever. And we're very foolish if we dismiss people because they don't, you know, exa- they don't exactly have our faith the way they are. God will use all sorts of people to talk to us. And the wise man or woman is listening for the voice of the Lord. I have no idea where I launched. Okay. He will send someone to speak to us. Uh, and the way we respond to these voices reveals whether we are wise or foolish. In that particular area. Let's listen to Solomon again. He who corrects a scoffer. Gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man. Gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer. Or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man. And he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man. And he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man. And he will increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The scoffer is the person who mocks those who take their faith seriously. You know the person that goes, oh, so you're so holy. You, have, you and your Jesus. There, usually, there can be that they're a religious person. They go to church, you know, but, but you, if you start getting too zealous, they're going to tell you about it. Like 
Oh, yeah, 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 you're the, you're the Christian, aren't you? Okay, forgot about that. In Psalm 1, David says this, he says, you know, he says, how blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Number one, doesn't uh, follow ungodly counsel. Number two, standeth in the way of sinners, doesn't do the sinful things that the sinners do. But number three, or sit in the seat of the scornful or the scoffer. The person who sits back and laughs at people who take their faith seriously. Solomon says to his son, he says, I'm going to tell you, if you correct a scoffer, you correct somebody who's two-faced, they pretend to be a Christian, but they're not really. What you'll get is a pop. And some of, many of, I suppose all of us at various times, have you ever confronted somebody who's supposedly a believer and you've told them what they're doing is wrong and what you got for your efforts was you got hit full bore right between the eyes. They came back at you and they said, who are you to talk to me? You think you're perfect, do you? And they began to come at you and, and attract you and criticize you and point out all the flaws about you. You have no place to talk to me. You have lived to regret it. <laughs> that sign of a person who will not receive correction, in my judgment, is a sign that they are not regenerate. I'm going to just be blunt with you. Because the Jesus I know, the way I met him, is I bowed my knee to him. And if I've bowed my knee to this Jesus, he has every right to correct me. And my life with him has been a life in which he corrects me all the time. Yes, he encourages me. Yes, he affirms me. But he also corrects me. And I, there's been times when I've just said to, him, said to him, tell me what's wrong, just tell me what, but don't stop talking. Because whatever he's doing, if he tells me something's wrong, it's because it's poisonous. He's telling me, get the thing out of there. It's killing you, bud. He's never doing it cruelly. He's never trying to spoil a party. He's trying to keep me walking in the ways of blessing. Do you follow that? The new covenant that you and I serve, we don't serve the old covenant. We serve a new covenant, and the new covenant has everything to do with the fact that he's taken out the heart of stone and put it in a heart of flesh. You really, if you really repent, surrender to Jesus. That's what that means. And you embrace his cross. God will take out your heart of stone. That cold heart, that selfish, that self-oriented thing that's in all of us, pulls it out, and he puts in a flesh heart that loves him and loves people. And then he begins to teach you like a father. See, he doesn't judge you or throw you away. He takes you by the hand and says, come on, here we go. And he trains you. Now, he's not your judge, he's your father. He teaches you and walks you along. Here's how we do that. No, 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 quit, quit that. I said stop. All right, come on. Here we go. Aren't we grateful? And that process of disciplining and of being conformed is universal. Every one of us has to go through it. Every one of us will go through it. If you walk with the real God, I mean the real one, and I say that because right now the, the American church is preaching a tolerant God who seems to just think you're fabulous the way you are. He loves you the way you are and, and thinks you're in need of real repair. And he takes you by the hand and conforms you. Because here's where we're all going. You know what, the, you know what we're all going to be done when, we, when we, we get finished? We look like Jesus. So there's the easy test. So how are you doing? Do you look like Jesus right now? Well, then things are going to change some more. Me too. And it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. I'm being set free. I'm going to tell you something. If I followed my flesh, if, I just, if Jesus just loved me the way I was... I would tear my family up. I'd tear you up. I would never be in anything that I'm doing now. I would have ruined it all because of the impulses and the garbage that's in my soul. And the way I was raised. I was raised in a mess. If I let those forces have their way, I'd tear everything to pieces. Thank heavens I have a father 
who's disciplined me and brought me to heal time and again, grieved me until I repented and apologized. My life's are full of apologies, thank heavens. <laughs> there are indeed individuals who do not fear God and have never submitted to him. But I think most those of us who do fear him and have submitted to him still have certain areas in our lives that we don't want God to correct when he speaks to us. We don't want to listen. There are areas in which we are foolish. These are areas in which we are foolish. Do you see what I'm saying? There are areas in each of our lives in which we are foolish. It's not just certain individuals are really foolish. It is the, I think we all have certain areas we are foolish and certain areas we are wise. And the evidence that we have such an area is our refusal to listen to the voice of correction. And because God loves us and has ordained that we become like his son, he will move to the next step. He will lift his protective hand and let us eat the bitter fruit of our disobedience. At first, rebellion seems like liberation. We find joy in our sin. But when God tells us not to do a thing, it's because there is death of some kind in that action or attitude. And sooner or later, we will reap what we've sown. Our sin will bring death in the form of broken relationships, lost jobs, ruined careers, destructive addictions, and probably most painful of all, the sense of shame when we come before God. You just can't avoid that. And my, in my opinion, that's the devil's number one goal. You will find, just think about your own life, whenever, just, just before church, just before you're supposed to minister, just before some moment when you really need him, you will get so attacked It'll hit you like a ton of bricks, whether it's temptation or, or some event, something will happen. Literally orchestrated to bring you down so that you will sin. So that in that moment when you needed him most, you're full of shame and you don't dare come to him. Right? That's the program. And it goes on all the time. Just notice in your own life, you'll begin to realize there is indeed an enemy of your soul. There is indeed something said against you, trying to bring you down. And then it'll make you mad. <laughs> like, you're not winning, devil. And you begin to press through and realize, here it comes. Here it comes. I knew it would come. Boom. But you're strong this time because you're prepared. And so you enter into, you begin to learn to enter into situations full of the Spirit, confident that he's with you and everything changes. Now, at this point, I need to insert a note of caution because someone is likely to ask, I'm going through hardship. Does that mean I'm under discipline? And here's how I would answer that question. All hardship is not discipline. In fact, most hardship is not discipline. Did you hear that? The person whom God is finally disciplining this way knows that he's the source because they have deliberately refused his voice so many times. And if that's the case, the way out of that hardship is repentance. Once we release that foolishness and embrace his will, there is no need for discipline. God immediately begins to guide us out of that situation. Remember, his discipline is never punishment. Hear this? It's correction. It's never meant to hurt us. It's meant to rescue us from something worse. There is a profound lesson here. As long as God is disciplining us, he is showing, us, showing his love for us. The danger comes when he stops, when our conscience doesn't bother us anymore, when no one comes to confront us, when we feel at peace with a behavior the Bible clearly forbids. I have, heard, have you heard this phrase? I know it's wrong, but God's all right with it. What? I have heard, I mean, I, I can't believe some of the people who have said this. I, I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. But I prayed. And they, they threw that in. But God, and God said he's all right with it. <laughs> this is his word. If he's against it here, he's against it there. Did you, do I understand? Is that complicated? Did I lose you anywhere? <laughs> to say that he's suddenly all right with something that he clearly forbids is ridiculous. Look, if you're going to sin, 
Have the guts to say it. Just say, hey, I'm flaunting everything I know to be true. But my lust and my, my drives inside, they're just controlling me, and I'm going to follow them. You haven't done spiritual damage. You're actually going to prove a point. The person who has to lie about it, who has to cover it up, who says God's all right with it, now you bring confusion in. You bring the demonic in, to be honest with you, not only in your, your own appetites, but in what you've chosen to do. Now you're hurting everybody around you, the children, the, the people who know you. They're all confused. What do you, I thought God would... You know, you've actually just served the enemy like crazy with that. If you're going to sin, sin bravely. Seriously. There's two ways. You can sin honestly. Just like, hey, this is rotten, and I'm going to do it. Then do it. And we'll all watch you crash and burn, and you'll be a perfect illustration for us. We'll be preaching on you for years. Yeah, yeah. don't be like Steve. Remember what happened to him, huh? Yeah, you watch it. Okay, I am sure I am way out of, t- I got to move. I should have moved about 15 minutes ago. All right, conclusion. This, the disciplinary process we describe today is for, the, is for the first type of unbeliever that Paul mentions in this passage, not the second. It's how God deals with his rebellious children when they insist on doing things that could put their future with him at risk. He doesn't deal this way with those who don't know him. Yes, all sin brings hardship, but not all sin hardens the human heart. Did you hear that? There's rebellious sin and there's just innocent sin. Some people are unaware of how God wants them to live, so their lifestyle, while definitely wrong in God's eyes, is not done defiantly. They're simply confused people trying to cope with life. That's very different than someone who knows what's right, but chooses not to do it, and then resists God's appeals to stop. The lesson that lies behind this passage is to repent quickly when God speaks to us, and to recognize that his voice even when confronting us, is a gift we must never take for granted. We never want his voice to become silent. We choose to listen carefully and repent quickly. Would you say that? We choose to listen carefully and repent quickly. Here is a beautiful truth that Paul told the Corinthians earlier in this letter. Would you read this with me? But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.